0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pulmonologist gives a detailed description of what COVID 19 does to the lungs and how the disease is currently being treated in hospital critical care units.
1: It is difficult to predict the outcome, but there are some big, 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 big predictors. One is the vaccination status.
0: And a physician scientist tells about his study of a potential yellow fever
2: vaccine and how you can volunteer. It's a randomized trial, um, and you'll either get the standard uh, vaccine that is FDA approved, or you'll get this newer vaccine, and uh, we'll compare, um, the, compare the two that way.
0: All that, plus some expert advice about how sleep apnea increases stroke risk, and a visit from the Heal. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. Your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about a yellow fever vaccine trial that you may be able to volunteer for. Then a stroke neurologist tells how sleep apnea increases your risk of stroke. But first, a pulmonologist provides a detailed description of what the COVID virus does to the lungs and how COVID is currently being treated in hospital critical care units. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Severe cases of COVID-19 cause inflammation in the lungs. Today we'll explore what that means and also how permanent it can be with an expert in lung disorders. Dr. Dana Savage is an associate professor of medicine and chief of the pulmonary critical care division at Upstate University Hospital. Dr. Savage, I really appreciate you making time for this interview.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure.
0: Well, let me explain to our listeners that critical care is the care that's provided in the intensive care unit and pulmonary means lungs. So you really have an expertise when it comes to caring for patients with severe cases of COVID nineteen. It's been described as a respiratory illness. So I'd like to have you walk us through what that means.
1: So um, the COVID nineteen virus um, penetrates the human bodies through the respiratory system and the and the mucus lining, like eyes and uh, mucus lining of the. Uh, mouth of the oral cavity. And that's the, we call it port of entry. So that's how it penetrates the uh, the body. And from there, it may remain locally, like in the nostrils, where it likes to take residence and cause um, stuffy nose and a little cough and congestion and fever, obviously, or may travel um, to the lungs through the breathing pipes. they We call them airways and cause inflammation of the lung and the blood vessels in the
0: lung. If it moves into the lungs, are are both lungs usually affected or does it go to one or the other?
1: Um, I have to say I've seen a large number of patients with uh, COVID pneumonia in the intensive care unit. And mostly I have seen um, the damage to both lungs. I wonder whether that's also timing when uh, patients get very ill, then that's a sign that the infection has already spread. Maybe at the earlier stages, maybe it's more limited, but I only see patients in advanced stages of the infection.
0: So the coronavirus can cause severe inflammation in the lungs, but isn't the body's inflammatory? Is that that inflammatory response is what fights the virus? Is that right? Uh,
1: Yes, we like to say
0: to believe
1: that it is the inflammatory response that is a defense mechanism of our, our body against any infection and so is against the coronavirus However, um, the inflammation on occasion with any uh, infection, it's um, exaggerated, it goes overboard. And from a defense mechanism becomes an enemy causing damage and disease in itself.
0: So we need some inflammatory response but not too much, hopefully.
1: Yes, that is correct. Uh, it is also interesting that the only drug that has shown improved survival in patients in with critical uh, illness pneumonia uh, is a uh, it's called dexamethasone it's a it's a hydrocortisone and the purpose of the drug it's anti-inflammatory
0: oh interesting
1: So that speaks to the importance of the balance between inflammation and anti-inflammation for our lungs to sail smoothly through this infection.
0: So when lung tissue is inflamed, how does that affect, or does does it affect a person's ability to breathe? That's a very um, good question. And
1: very interesting to us in uh, pulmonary and critical care medicine yes the inflammation affects the alveoli which are a component of the respiratory system of the lung where the gas exchange occurs in the alveoli the oxygen finds its way into the blood vessels and the carbon dioxide it's eliminated there's the only place where this kind of a gas exchange occurs all the oxygen that our body uses to live to for the heart to beat, for our brains to function, for our kidneys to function, for our muscles, all of that oxygen has, has to go through these alveoli from the ambient air. If when the alveoli are flooded with inflammatory material, cell, inflammatory cells, we call it exudates or so fluid, dead cells, then that space is occupied by these. Unwelcomed elements, and they are no longer able to carry out their fundamental function in gas exchange. So that's why uh, people's oxygen level become low and then it's hard to breathe. It's also hard to breathe because the lung is now stiffer, it's no longer filled with air and elastic, but it's stiffer because of uh, all these components that don't belong there are present.
0: Is this what happens with pneumonia as well? Yeah, uh, to uh, many uh,
1: types of pneumonia, well, both um, viral and uh, bacterial, um, the the same process happens. There is an inflammatory reaction which affects the uh, breathing component of the lung, and uh, then it's difficult to breathe it's harder to move the air in and out, and then it's harder to get the oxygen from the air into the system.
0: So from a patient's point of view, they're having to struggle to breathe, it sounds like. Yes, yes. Well, what, what determines whether someone is gonna die from this disease or whether they're gonna be able to recover?
1: Um, that's also a very interesting question. and. In the intensive care unit, we uh, oftentimes we uh, try to gauge the chances of somebody's survival to kind of be prepared what's coming next, and it is very difficult um, because at least in the first half of the pandemic, about half of the patients on mechanical ventilation on ventilator did not survive. Now the um, statistics have improved, and only 20 uh, percent may uh, die of those who end up on mechanical ventilation. So um, it is difficult to predict the outcome, but there are some big, 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 big predictors. Which is uh, one is the vaccination status. Somebody who has who is fully vaccinated or had already COVID and then vaccinated. If they get COVID again, they usually have a mild disease, but I didn't see a breakthrough infection in the ICU. And then the second biggest predictor of what's going to happen to the uh, patient is his immune status, whether or not he's immune compromised. Patients who uh, underwent organ transplant, especially solid organ transplant, their immunosuppressants, they have a huge risk of um, not surviving an infection, even um, vaccinated. That's why these, these are the patients that now are going to get a booster. So, the, so uh, vaccination status, immune system status, cancer, chemotherapy, um, organ transplant, um, individuals who are on biologics for um, rheumatological diseases, because these are all immunosuppressants they're at the highest risk of not surviving. And then the other categories, I believe uh, we know, most of the people know who are the other categories of patients with a poor outcome are the elderly. So uh, those who are over 90 years old, they have a 25% risk of death if they get infected. Um, So age, uh, asthma, diabetes, hypertension, Maybe strokes, but those are the big um, predictors of poor outcome.
0: Are smokers at greater risk for a bad outcome? Only 40%
1: of the smokers develop lung disease. So the other 60%, um, they have mechanisms to counteract the effects of smoking on their lungs. And they have all practical purposes. They have normal lungs. Uh, Intuitively, more damage the lungs are when they go through this inflammatory process, harder is for lungs to fight than recover. But I have to be honest, I do not know the data, although it must be out there.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Dana Savage. She's an associate professor of medicine and chief of the Pulmonary Critical Care Division at Upstate University Hospital. Now let's talk about treatment. Um, you mentioned dexamethasone, the anti-inflammatory. Um, do people with severe COVID, are they generally on supplemental oxygen? And how do you decide whether they need a ventilator or not? Okay.
1: So um, if once they develop COVID-19 uh, induced uh, viral pneumonia, some of the patients require oxygens, oxygen other Others not, depending on how extensively the uh, lung gets involved. But as the disease progresses, and sometimes this is obvious within hours or even days, the oxygen requirements become higher and higher, meaning that the patient has less and less lung that functions for the purposes of lung function. Oxygen, um, gas transfer oxygen, and carbon dioxide. So, uh, we have a number of means to deliver a high level of oxygen, um, you know, nasal cannula, or we call it high flow, when the oxygen is delivered with some pressure to force the airs through the lungs into the blood vessels. And then, once uh, our, um, these means are exhausted and the disease continues to progress, then uh, the next step, it's, you know, the step up is placement of the patients on mechanical ventilation.
0: I've heard about some COVID patients being positioned on their stomachs. Is that still being done? And and why would it be?
1: Yes, it's done in um, both patients who are on mechanical ventilation and who are not. And, um, changing the position to the stomach redistributes uh, where most of the blood flow in the lung goes and um, makes regions of the lung to work better or clearly recruits them to, to respiration. So um, it, it's just more workforce in a, in a lung that is getting recruited. And there are patients who stop at this level I would like to add um, a uh, piece of information here. Um, so what is breathing on, on the stomach came from? It's, it's an, uh, not a new concept, it's an older concept. There were you know, many articles on it, but and it, they all showed that improves the oxygen transfer, improves the oxygenation. But what we are in, interested in is whether the patients are going to survive longer because that's our goal, to help the patients survive longer. Um, so, you know, there was a very important study in 2012, which actually showed an important survival benefit when the patients are flipped on their stomach. Now, this is not COVID. This is um, just general lung injury. Um, but uh, we have this data in the information has been extrapolated to the treatment of patients with COVID. And a lot of times works very well. There are patients and once they're flipped on their stomach, the oxygen system is much better. So, uh, you know, I wanna just backtrack a little bit. And I think that that's uh, uh, maybe will be helpful for the, for the future is I just want to say it's,
3: uh,
1: I think this is obvious, but we haven't uh, made the centerpiece of our talk. There is no treatment for COVID infection. Okay? There is no treatment that helps patients survive, or there is no treatment for this viral infection. So notoriously, other viruses are much more difficult to treat um, than um, bacterial infections. But COVID, we do not have treatment against the virus. So what do we treat? We treat the inflammation. And we push um, strategies to improve the oxygen transfer. But with these strategies, when oxygen transfer is improved, what we're actually aiming at is to support the patient's life until the, the pneumonia and the infection subsides on its
0: own. I see.
1: So we have evidence and we know from other diseases that. If we support the patient's life, eventually the organ the body is going to be able to
0: limit the infection with the dexamethasone, if it yeah. is going to help reduce the inflammation, then the hope is that the patient's lungs or their immune system will that little bit of relief from the inflammation will help it work better to get rid of the virus on its own
1: right,
0: right. Are there other medicines that you find yourself using with COVID-19 patients frequently? So um, uh,
1: there, are, uh, there are treatments that they are aimed at outpatient COVID and treatments that aim, are aimed at patients who are hospitalized. So the treatment for um, outpatients is monoclonal antibodies against the virus. Once they become critically ill, that treatment does it's not effective anymore therefore it's not administered the treatments that are used in a critical ill patients are the anti-inflammatory treatment and strategies to prolong life regardless of the cause of uh, the the cause of the
0: disease upstate's health link on air will take a short break but we'll be back soon with more about the effects of covid on the lungs with dr dana savage Welcome back to Upstate's HealthLink Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Dana Savage, an Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Pulmonary Critical Care Division at Upstate University Hospital. We've been talking about how patients with severe cases of COVID are treated in the hospital critical care unit. Would a lung transplant cure someone who has severe COVID? Traditionally, lung transplants were not performed in
1: acute patients. So if somebody had a acute lung injury from say strep pneumonia and didn't recover to the point that could walk and be discharged did not qualify for a, for a transplant so you know there are physicians who have made a name in the um, world health organizations and helping countries to um, you know, to make great progress in their public health and uh, infection control and prevention, who died of SARS, for instance, of um, the earlier COVID, um, because, and they, they died because they had severe pneumonia and nobody would transplant somebody who's in bed with severe pneumonia. So what happened now uh, was that there are a number of COVID patients who survived on and they survived on ECMO, and they were taken off ECMO, and some went back to ACMO and uh, or they couldn't come off the ventilator. And uh, nationwide, uh, some of these patients have been uh, transplanted. So I cannot give you exact numbers because I think the registry was just started but there was a registry started and um, last I was aware of it was about six months ago, there are about 45 patients who transplanted. And huh. one, one was from our, uh, was from Skinny Atlas, was our patients at, at, at Upstate. And, um, and his wife actually found out that COVID patients are transplanted. And uh, we have transferred him, I believe we transferred him on ECMO To a center in Florida where we also had connections and, uh, he was transplanted. So this was about 6 months into the disease.
0: So, it might be a little too soon to tell if that's a therapy that would be. Effective for, you know, the masses.
1: So, for the masses, the main limiting factor is organ availability.
0: Right. You have to have a donor that matches up in order right. to right.
3: yes. There,
1: there are there are more patients waiting for lung transplant or lung transplant list than, than than donors, and obviously the ones that qualify are the healthiest ones and the ones that went through COVID without major organ damage or without being uh, majorly compromised, who despite of uh, a severe infection. Um, their body still retained a lot of uh, repair capabilities, uh, as was this inv- individual who was completely healthy before I had COVID.
0: Well, let me ask you to explain, if you would, please, um, ECMO. What What is that? So ECMO
1: stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And this is also a limited resource. It's not... Um, uh, there are more patients than needed than ECMO availability. Um, the, the processes that the now the lungs don't work at all. So the the individual would die because the lungs are majorly compromised. So when that happens, then the question is, if we keep this person alive for Prolonged period of time, would this lungs heal by themselves? Um, so, obviously, there's somebody who has terminal cancer or has other terminal diseases that affect their survival. Um, ECMO is probably not an appropriate uh, management strategy. But an individual who is pretty healthy and doesn't have major other major diseases, and there is a hope for recovery then, the, then th- their entire blood is diverted from the lungs into outside of their body. And the blood is passed through an oxygenator and uh, which does the function of the lung, uh, loads the blood with oxygen and offloads the carbon dioxide. And then the freshly, uh, the refreshed blood is returned into the circulation
2: as
1: long would work and even better. And it's called extracorporeal, so outside of the body, membrane oxygenation. So outside of the body oxygenation, you know,
0: the transfer is through a membrane. Interesting. Well, I've I've heard of some people with COVID uh, having limbs amputated. Why might that happen? You know,
1: that's an also very, um, it's an excellent question. COVID, this virus um, very strangely has a affinity for blood vessels. And I'll give you an example. There was a study published in New England Journal of Medicine last year in July. And they looked at lungs from patients who died of lung injury of other causes, those who died of lung injury from COVID and those who died of other causes and the lungs were normal. The lungs of patients with COVID showed what we call um, microangiopathic thrombosis, meaning that the lining of the blood vessel, actually the lining of the blood vessel, had virus in it, and it caused plugging of the uh, inflammation of the wall of the vessel, and and uh, plugged the vessels. Okay, so. Um, the inflammation was so intense in a, in a, in a blood vessels that they were obstructed. So the circulation ceased through those vessels. There's also a lot of inflammation around the vessels, not just inside the vessels. I found it very interesting that we didn't see the virus in other places in the lung, but we saw it in a in the lining of the blood vessels. So that can happen in the entire body, and they these patients are predisposed. We call it. They are hypercoagulable. They their blood coagulates more than normal. The, the, uh, the, uh, their blood forms blood clots to a larger extent than in normal individuals. So the result of that are blood clots to lung, pulmonary embolism, strokes, so blood vessels clogged and obstructed in the brain. Limbs, where the blood flow is cut off and uh, the tissue dies and the limb has to be amputated. Kidneys, the same thing. A lot of people think that a kidney failure in COVID patients, it's due to more of the blood vessel disease than other causes. Um, and, and I have to say that um, we, at the beginning of the um, epidemic, we have, given blood thinners to patients, to all of them, because we just didn't know who will benefit and who will not. And um, was very, there was no data behind it. It was more speculation in the, the idea that if their blood is coagulating more than in normal, then let's make it thinner. But um, just a, a week ago, there was a paper, which came out in uh, New England Journal of Medicine, which showed that patients were hospitalized, but not critically ill. And they are fully regulated meaning that they, their blood is sent to certain parameters. So if the blood is sent, that their survival is better than those whose blood is not sent
0: interesting
1: so it really shows to what an extensive degree this is a disease can be a disease of the blood vessels i also have to say that this disease has many facets not everybody has blood clots not everybody has um, kidney failure not everybody develops pneumonia it's just a very multifaceted uh,
0: disease so maybe we won't be calling it a respiratory virus when we look back on it if we continue to learn about all the other damage that it's doing.
1: I think that these damages are occurred to a much lesser frequency than the than the than the respiratory, or they occur in conjunction with the with the respiratory virus. Okay. Because the port of entry is still the upper airways.
0: Okay. Well, I'm interested in people who have what um, is being called long COVID, where they're still struggling to take a deep breath, even months after they've been released from the hospital. Does that mean that their lungs have sustained permanent damage?
1: Um, So I do see patients and outpatients who have prolonged symptoms of difficulty breathing, breathing, feeling tired and weak. And um, and I see uh, patients who are ag- athletes and they actively push themselves to gain ground. And I hear the same story. Very, very slow. Um, I don't, uh, we uh, check their pulmonary function tests. We check their oxygenation. These are normal. Most of the time, by the time, you know, they come to our attention a couple of weeks or months after the acute disease but yet they are short of breath. So I thought that a lot of it may be due to fatigue, to feeling tired from the virus, that makes it harder to breathe. Um, There's also a category of patients who are left with severe scarring of the lung, um, which is a permanent damage. I think to answer your question, I would say that there are temporary symptoms and there are long-term consequences. Long-term consequences are uh, very rare. The short-term consequences are common.
0: What is, if anything, can a person do to help their lungs recover? I mean, you mentioned athletes. Are they advised to try to you know, get back into the game or get back into working out or do they need to rest for longer periods?
1: So um, again, um, the advice we give uh, right now it's not based on um, hard data; it's not there yet. Uh, so we advise against prolonged rest because that can make them weaker. Uh, more more we rest, um, weaker the muscles are, harder to breathe. And then we want to rest more sit around more and not uh, walk up steps. And then we are weak or emotional breath. It's a downward spiral. We advise them to slowly slide into a their previous life pattern and uh, it takes
0: months. Dr. Savage, I really appreciate your time. My guest has been Dr. Dana Savage. She's an associate professor of medicine and chief of the Pulmonary Critical Care Division at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Do you qualify to volunteer for a yellow fever vaccine study? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Institute for Global Health is studying a potential new vaccine for yellow fever, and here to tell us all about it is the principal investigator, Dr. Chris Paulino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. Thank you for making time once again for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Paulino.
2: Not a problem. Thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to start by having you tell us about yellow fever and why it's a disease that travelers to Africa and South America have been recommended to be vaccinated against.
2: Yeah, so so yellow fever is something that's, you know, it's been around for centuries. We actually used to have yellow fever outbreaks in the United States um, way back when. Um, and it, the problem with the the infection is there is no real treatment for it. So um, if you get it. Um, you kind of have to get supported through the infection, and given the fact that it does have high uh, case fatality rates, it can be really devastating and What often happens is you'll get infections, and then um if you're in a an area where the mosquitoes are able to transmit it, you can get large outbreaks and it can it can spread very quickly
0: so it can be deadly,
2: absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, even with supportive care, people do die of this infection, um, and, you know, most of the data that's out there would indicate that about 50% of people who get infected with this will will not make it through.
0: Now, is it only transmitted through the bite of a mosquito, or can an infected person spread it to to another person?
2: Yes, yeah, this is technically a viral hemorrhagic fever, so you think about things like Ebola virus and how that can be transmitted from person to person. With yellow fever, it really needs to be spread by the mosquito. Um, so there is unlikely a chance that you'd have a person-to-person transmission. I'm sure there are some very, very rare case reports where that's a possibility, uh, probably more so from a needle stick injury. Um, but for the most part, you know, that's it's not how it's transmitted. It has to be the mosquito.
0: So you mentioned that we've had yellow fever in the United States, but long ago. Is there any evidence of it being found in mosquitoes in New York state anytime in the near past?
2: Uh, no, no, I, in fact, the, the mosquito that carries yellow fever, uh, which is typically the 80s aegypti mosquito, isn't really found here in New York state. Um, there, are some, uh, there are some references of 80s uh, albopictus, which is a similar type of mosquito being right on our doorstep. That potentially could carry yellow fever, but nothing that's been indicated that that we, we have a threat looming in our region.
0: Now, from time to time, we have had an issue with West Nile virus in mosquitoes around here. Is that related to yellow fever in any way?
2: It is distantly related, um, both yellow fever and West Nile fever are flaviviruses. So that from that standpoint, they are related now the mosquitoes that spread each are different. So you have the Aedes aegypti for yellow fever, which we don't really have here. And then we have Culex species mosquitoes, which are are more bird mosquitoes that will spread West Nile virus. So that's kind of why we see the the idea of these dead crows signifying a West Nile outbreak in our region, because those mosquitoes are going to attack birds as well as potentially humans.
0: Now, getting back to yellow fever is fever the main symptom of this disease is that why it's called yellow fever
2: yeah so um if fever is in the name you know you know you're going to have it but it's not the the only thing that you worry about so um you know generally with yellow fever you're going to have two phases of illness there's going to be this acute phase where people are going to have this kind of flu-like illness that um, can be pretty severe. You can have bad headaches. Um, you can have uh, muscle aches, uh, flu-like symptoms in general, as I said. And then there's this toxic phase that can develop, and that's where people really go downhill. Um, generally, they go into multi-organ failure, kidneys shut down. Um, so, a sign of that would be maybe not urinating as much. Uh, generally, people will turn yellow, and they'll become jaundice, which is the other part of the name. Um, and then on top of that, because the liver is affected, um, there's generally a lot of bleeding that can occur. So people can have bleeding you know, pretty much from anywhere, bruising under the skin, um, and it can get pretty severe pretty quickly.
0: If a doctor suspects that someone may have yellow fever, uh, is there a test available to confirm it?
2: Yeah, there's a couple of tests. So classically we use antibody response. So you can do serologic testing that can test for yellow fever. Um, You know, that may or may not be helpful if somebody has a really severe disease, really with any kind of viral infection, you may not mount an antibody response. So you may get a false negative. Um, In addition to that, there are uh, some places where you can send the samples off to and do PCR testing to to look for the actual genetic material in the person's bloodstream. So, uh, for example, the CDC would be a place that I would reach out to if I had a suspicion of yellow fever and needed to have. Blood uh, sent off for PCR testing.
0: Now, as I understand it, a vaccine for yellow fever has been in use for several decades. So what's new about what you're studying.
2: So, to, to go back a step just to that old vaccine, um, you know, this, this vaccine is probably 1 of the most successful vaccines in the history of man. Um, and, and I say that because. It's generally a single shot and. The, the data in the past had indicated that we needed to do a 10 year booster, but most of the data that we're seeing coming out now has actually eliminated the need for that in most places, because. You know, we have people who are 30, 40, 50 years out from vaccination, who still have good protective antibodies. So it's a good vaccine. There's, there's nothing has really changed from that standpoint. The problem is. The way that it's manufactured and the fact that it requires an egg-based uh, manufacturing process, it slows things down quite a bit. And when you have big outbreaks like we've seen in sub-Saharan Africa in the past several years, and you need to use millions upon you know tens of millions of doses um, to try to you know curb the effects of the outbreak, these these resources were dwind- they were dwindled pretty readily. So it got to the point where They were so desperate, they were actually using fractionated doses of that vaccine to try to protect people basically taking instead of a full dose, a full vial for the vaccine, using that in multiple people in smaller doses to try to provide some form of immunity to protect people. So that 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 issue that shortage really kind of raised the eyebrows of a lot of the public health officials and realized we need an effective vaccine that we can rapidly make and get out in the situation that we have another one of these outbreaks. And we have these outbreaks pretty frequently in in Africa, especially. So that's, that's where this new vaccine comes into play. It's very similar to the old one. It's a live attenuated vaccine. It's a single dose. The way that they make it though is different. Instead of using eggs, they use a cell culture.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Christopher Paolino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he's recruiting volunteers for a new clinical trial for a yellow fever vaccine at Upstate's Center for Global Health. So I'd like to ask you how your study's designed and, and what its goals are.
2: So the, the goals of this study are really to compare the immune response to this newer vaccine to the you know the standard uh, age-old vaccine that we've been using for forever um, that in, in addition to looking at the safety of the two just to make sure that there's no um, no significant differences in either of those um, just based on the fact that we're producing it differently um, so that's that's the main the main focus of it So,
0: how many people are you recruiting and what ages and genders?
2: Yep. So, um, we are supposed to recruit up to 57 people here at our site. Um, that could be potentially less. It could be potentially more. Um, we're looking for 18 to 60 year olds, um, in a variety of different uh, genders as well as races. Um, anybody who would be of interest um, of participating in the study would be would be welcome. We do do a pretty extensive screening of their health um, to determine whether or not it would be appropriate for them to be in the study. Um, so, a couple things that would probably prevent somebody from participating would include um, pregnancy or lactating. Um, if somebody has any kind of severe immunodeficiencies or any kind of immune modulating drugs that they're taking. So anything that could affect their ability to mount an immune response. Um, and then anybody with any kind of other severe uh, or significant medical disorders that in the uh, eyes of the investigators, myself and my colleagues included, uh, may, may make it uh, somewhat unsafe for them to be in the study.
0: Now, are you looking for people who've already been vaccinated for yellow fever or if they might have already had yellow fever
2: for this particular study? We are looking for people who are not yellow fever vaccinated um, and have not been uh, receiving any vaccines for other types of flaviviruses as well. so that's kind of the uh, the cutoff. We're not looking for people who have had it before um, to see if it boosts or anything like that. We're looking for people who have not had any prior exposure to yellow fever in, in any source.
0: Now, in terms of what's going to be required of the volunteers, will everybody, will all of the participants receive one of the vaccinations against yellow fever?
2: Yep, it's a it's a randomized trial, um, and you'll either get the standard uh, vaccine that is FDA approved. Or you'll get this newer vaccine, and uh, we'll compare um, the, compare the two that way. Um, as far as kind of study visits and things like that, it'll be a one-time injection for both, and then there'll be several visits up through six months. Uh, I think it's a total of up to five visits, depending on uh, where where people are enrolled and um, you know, in, in what cohort we're looking at um, in terms of uh, early phase versus later, and then. There are going to be uh, annual visits every year, starting at 12 months. So there'll be up to potentially 10 visits for this yellow fever vaccine. Although I think our site is only doing 9 visits.
0: Now, the visits take place at your office at at upstate.
2: Yeah, so we have a research clinic. Uh, it's, uh, the global health research unit over on the 4th floor of the north building at the community campus. Um, we've been here since, uh, last November, I believe, and, uh, we basically just do clinical trials out of this site.
0: Now, once the volunteers, um, have the vaccine, are they then at, at 1 of these appointments going to be exposed to yellow fever?
2: No, no, no. Um, so, so you're kind of alluding to challenge studies, um, generally with a challenge study, um, you're not going to be doing, um a challenge of the virus or the bacteria that you're testing the vaccine against, unless you have really good treatment for that, or if there is some kind of um, alternative, like a really weakened strain of that infection of some sort. Um, But in this study, we are not doing anything like that. Just vaccine and then observe.
0: So So how do you tell whether it's working for this person? Do you test their blood at at regular intervals?
2: Yep, yeah, so we'll have blood work that will be done. And during that blood work, we'll take a look at their immune response to the vaccine to see uh, how high their antibodies against yellow fever have gotten.
0: What do you say about the risks to the volunteers? What do they need to know before they sign up?
2: So, you know, with the with the standard yellow fever vaccine, which is really where we have most of our information about, um, there are some risks associated with it as a live attenuated vaccine. Um, The risks are generally highest in people who are quite young, Um, so, you know, less than five years old, uh, older, um, generally over the age of 65 or even older than that, or people who have any kind of significant um, uh, medical disorders uh, that would inhibit their immune response. So if somebody had, you know, some problem with their immunity of some sort or had some thymus problems, that's another specific thing for the yellow fever vaccine. We wouldn't enroll any of those individuals into the study from from that standpoint, just from a safety perspective. Um, There are some risks associated with these vaccines. Um, In very, very rare cases, people who are not at those high risk groups can potentially have almost like an infection from the virus itself, since this is a live attenuated vaccine. Um, But it's something that I have not seen in practice in the 10, 11 years that I've been an infectious disease physician. So Um, It's quite, quite rare for that to happen. And that's what we generally tell people.
0: So what's the best way for someone who's interested to learn more?
2: Um, So probably the easiest way would be to call our recruitment line, which is 315-464-9869. You could also visit us at our website and we also have a Facebook account as well. So if you were to search uh, Global Health SUNY Upstate, uh, I'm sure you'll probably find us on there.
0: Now, in the meantime, for people who travel to areas with a threat of yellow fever transmission, they're still being recommended to get the traditional vaccine. Is that right? Correct. And do you have any other advice to um, reduce the risk of getting you know, bitten by a mosquito when you're traveling?
2: Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of different types of mosquitoes and a lot of different mosquito-borne illnesses when you go overseas. So with yellow fever in particular, the mosquitoes, the Aedes aegypti, they generally will bite in the mid to late afternoons. That's kind of their high peak. Um, And so if I were going into the Amazonian basin or an area in sub-Saharan Africa where there was a high level of yellow fever, I would use um, some kind of DEET containing bug spray, um, generally something about 25% DEET or greater. And I would use that at frequent intervals, especially in that afternoon period. Um, People talk a lot about bed nets. That's not gonna prevent you from getting yellow fever because the mosquitoes that bite you at night are generally gonna be the Anopheles mosquitoes that spread malaria, which is why malaria and bed nets kind of go together, Um, but it's not gonna do anything for yellow fever.
0: Well, well, I thank you for making time to tell us about this yellow fever vaccine trial. And I hope nope. anyone who's interested in volunteering makes a call to 315 464 9869 for more information. My guest has been Dr. Chris Paolino from Upstate's Center for Global Health. He's an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Here's some expert advice from Dr. Hesham Massoud from Upstate Medical University. What is the most important stroke warning symptom?
4: What is sleep apnea? It's obstructive. So, so sleep apnea essentially means that you're not breathing during sleep, and obstructive means it's due to some sort of obstruction. When you can't breathe, what happens? Your blood pressure gets up, right? And so now you're going to have these spikes in blood pressure that are happening multiple times, right? You're, you're also going to have your brain not get oxygenated well multiple times. Um, and so these things can cause types of disease and strokes um, risk just from kind of elevating a risk of of something like high blood pressure manifesting to to real dysfunction levels. Um, And it can also sort of be associated with um, uh, heart rhythm irregularities. And one of the big ones is the atrial fibrillation for stroke where the heart beats or, or, you know, fibrillates in a way where you get turbulence of blood flow and that turbulence sort of activates. A clotting, and then that clot gets pumped out by by the heart, which is uh, you know a pump to organs, and then gets carried to the brain, you know. Um, And so, so that that's another way for that risk to to potentially, um, you know, uh, be a little bit higher uh, with sleep apnea. So, so multiple multiple ways.
0: You've been listening to stroke neurologist Hesha Masood from Upstate Medical University, and now Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal. The Healing Muse with this week's selection.
3: The memories we have of those we have loved give the Muse some heartbreakingly beautiful poems. I'd like to read two of them now. The first is by writer and retired teacher and illustrator Mary Beth O'Connor. It is called Afterward. As October days fall into ripen and char, I lean toward what comes next, the darkening, the frosts, the nights full of nearer stars, I put on your coat, venture out, hearken to the news of changing seasons, hushed but for crunch of bootsteps toward the last squash to gather, then mow dead leaves to mulch, sweep the porch, store cushions, watch the forecast. Down by the pond, the red-winged blackbirds have departed. No more chatter and shrill. I'll not see them until the spring return, even though I keep the bird feeders full. I'll bring in firewood, clean the smoke-smudged glass, light the match, watch flames devour what's past. The next is from semi-retired publisher and poet, Jack Hopper, who has published four poetry collections. Here is your presence. Were it not for you, I'd be sitting here alone. You're gone, and I accept it, as the end at last, to so much pain you had to suffer, just to die, while others whom I've loved live on, or pass into the ether of distance and neglect. Occasionally, we still meet in that variant version of reality we call dreams, and you are quite real until the sun paws kind and quietly at the blind, reminding me there is another world wherein you will not walk. I will not hear your voice, will not lie down beside you, or reach out for what we both desired as you pass by.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what happens if you survive COVID but have brain fog or other lingering symptoms? To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.